0: Let's open our Bibles or navigate on your device to Exodus chapter 23 and verse 10. We're going to look at verses 10 through 19 this morning. Exodus 23, 10 through 19. Topic, the Lord gives Israel a calendar that stipulates a weekly rest day, annual feast days, and regular rest years. The title of our message, Father Knows Rest. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, as we uh, come before you this morning, we uh, appreciate that you came and died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and are coming again, and I pray that our hearts would be just thrilled, Lord, to think about that. Whatever sorrows and sufferings, griefs that we're bearing today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to cast our care upon you, knowing that you cared enough for us to die for us, and Lord, you extend that care to everything that we're going through today. We want to understand this scripture, Lord. We want to be taught by your Holy Spirit and, and grow in our knowledge of it. But more than that, Lord, we want to see Jesus in it. We want you to reveal yourself in a strong and powerful way so that we're encouraged to uh, fight the fight that you've put ahead of us, Lord, as we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agree, said amen. Time may fly when you're having fun, but when you're bored, it scrolls. With a hook that clever, I had to keep reading. It was an article about the native calendar on your iPhone. Apparently, you can scroll indefinitely backward or forward in time. Scrolling backward, one person reported that when you reach year 1 AD, it jumps to 1 BC and keeps going. The farthest anyone claims to have scrolled into the future is the year 60,313. That's a boring sermon. I'll tell you, you just keep going, right? I'll see you if you're doing that, by the way. My iPhone calendar likes to automatically alert me to certain holidays I've never heard of. Has that happened to you? Just the other day, it was Eid al-Fatir. It's on the U.S. holidays calendar. So are the Lunar New Year and something called Diwali. D-I-W-A-L-Y, or I, excuse me. We've come a long way since day planners and the Rolodex. Anybody ever use a Rolodex? Do you even know what I'm talking about? A lot of older people, first service, more, more old people. In fact, Dan Carson gave me an old Rolodex. <laughs> the last time I mentioned a Rolodex, about 20 years ago, he, he had one and he gave it to me. I'll, you'd have to come to my office, I can't explain it. There are seemingly endless calendar apps, and everyone has to have multiple calendars that need to be synced with one another. If you long for simpler times, you're going to like our text in Exodus. It presents the calendar of Israel, and it's pretty easy to understand. You worked for six days, then the seventh day was a day of rest for all individuals. After six years, the entire seventh year would be a time of extended rest for the land, Meanwhile, three times per calendar year, there would be feasts that every adult male Jew was mandated to attend. It's definitely a cool calendar. Not that we want to adopt their calendar or its observances. We don't. The Apostle Paul instructed believers in the church age, and I quote, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. What that means is that we have zero obligation to follow anything on the calendar God established for Israel. Doesn't mean we can't learn from it. Their work and their worship were planned out years in advance. It had built in rest and it was meant to be festive. So I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, your work for the Lord ought to be restful. And number two, your worship of the Lord ought to be festal or festive. Let's take a look at our work and our rest in verses 10 through 13. Now, most of you probably know this, but under California law, if you are a non-exempt worker, you're entitled to meal and rest breaks. A 30-minute meal break if you work more than five hours in a workday, 10-minute rest breaks for every four hours you work. A recent scientific study, and this is, this is real. It's not something made up. Uh, they actually studied the productivity of workers, The most productive formula is to work for 52 minutes followed by a 17-minute break. Cycle through the entire day that way. You end up having about 90 minutes in break time. But this is the most productive formula uh, in terms of getting things done. Now, you want to take this to your boss tomorrow and emphasize that you heard this in church, so it must be true I'm sure that he or she is going to implement that. Uh, But you actually will be a lot more productive uh, and and all. Uh, The Israelites had been slaves charged with making bricks in Egypt. That was their day job. Off time was spent sowing and harvesting crops and tending to their own livestock. In the recent past, during the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, they were required to make the same quota of bricks, but without being provided the necessary straw. So on top of everything else, they had to go out and gather their own straw. And so they had been used to brutal daily labor with no real break. The promised land would involve a much more relaxed pace. And we're going to get into that starting in verse 10. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. This is what I would have heard as a recently redeemed Israelite, your land and produce. God was giving them a land of their own and he was speaking as if it were a done deal. As far as he was concerned, they already possessed the land. And it wasn't hardpan or swamp land. It was going to be incredibly productive. It was going to flow with milk and honey, as we're told elsewhere. I'm sure they were chomping at the bit to get to work. God was going to have to rein them in a bit. And so in verse 11, it says, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. As an aside, I've got to ask this, and this is a sincere question. If you are a Sabbatarian who farms or know somebody who's a Sabbatarian, someone who keeps the seventh day and farms, do they obey this command? Do they let their fields lie fallow one year every seven years? Because that, too, is part of the Sabbath command. Maybe some do. I I just, I don't know. I'd like to know. Now, part of the challenge to obeying this was believing that God would either give you an increase in your sixth-year crops or he would see you through with whatever you harvested. Either way, it required a great deal of faith. In practice, Israel would miserably fail. At one point, they would ignore the Sabbath year for 490 straight years. For nearly 500 years, they would ignore the Sabbath and keep... uh, planting their crops. God, therefore, set the time of Israel's captivity in Babylon at 70 years, which was the exact number of Sabbath years they had worked rather than rested. Though fallow the fields would still produce, a benefit of fallow fields was that the poor could glean from them and so could animals. Now, this doesn't mean that they only ate every seven years. It means that they feasted every seven years during the six years of regular crops the poor could glean but not get as much of a yield. In the book of Leviticus, we learn that uh, the Israelites left the margins of their grain fields unharvested. The width of this margin appears to be up to the owner to decide. But so the outside of the fields, they didn't harvest so that the poor could come easily and take what was there. Uh, They were not to pick whatever produce fell to the ground. So you wanted to have really nimble-fingered pickers because anything that fell to the ground was left on the ground uh, to be uh, taken by the poor. And they were to harvest their vineyards just once, presumably taking only the ripe grapes so as to leave the later ripening ones. So they just it was a one pass through, and whatever was left after that uh, was for the poor. And so that was part of the welfare system that God instituted. And so that was every, uh, every year for six years. And then in the seventh year... Because there was no harvesting going on, but the land would still produce, uh, the poor got kind of a bounty. The exciting thing, the thing we overlook by talking about this, is that God was giving them a huge time of rest. The Israelites got a year off every six years. We envy teachers who get summers off. These guys got an entire year off uh, if they obeyed the Lord. It was a rest, though, that required them to trust in God. It might be their land, and it might be on account of hard work that their crops produced, but it was only because of God that they were being blessed. To ignore the Sabbath year and sow crops was to disbelieve God. Our work as believers ought to be restful. It's not by might, we're told, nor by power that we produce anything for the Lord. It's all by His Spirit. Jesus said partnering with Him would make for spiritual rest. That doesn't mean we're idle. It isn't that we just let go and let God. The truth is, we are to be spiritual workaholics. If that sounds weird, I'll give you an example. We are told to pray without ceasing. That's a lot. That's, that's a prayeraholic. Uh, and yet, at the same time, the Lord says we're to do it while we're in a time of spiritual rest, that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. And so, one application of that is that I pray and I pray and I pray. And then I trust the Lord for the answer to my prayer. Yes, no, or wait. And um, whatever he answers is his will for my life. And I should be able to rest in that. Now that's easier said than done, is it not? Because we, when we pray, we want our will done. And it's, uh, it's difficult sometimes to even understand how things that happen in our lives can be the will of God or be within the will of God. Uh, and yet... The Bible promises us rest as we work for the Lord. Our work is done by his empowering. We're not to get proud and think our effort is the reason we're being blessed or that it merits us more favor from God. You know, when I come up to you and say, well, yeah, this morning I got up at uh, four o'clock and hit the ground, hit my knees, you know, spent the first 18 hours in prayer. Of course, now it's only 6 a.m., so I don't know how I did that. And then you say, oh, wow, man, that's awesome. God moved on my heart to not even go to bed last night. I turned off that movie. I said, God, that's so carnal. I'm just going to pray on my face before you. I like the Chuck Smith analogy. I don't know. I remember Chuck one time in one of his books, he said, the days that he forgot his devotions and was too rushed to say anything, God blessed him the most. Not that he wanted to repeat that because he enjoyed devotions, he enjoyed spending time with the Lord, but the Lord sometimes does stuff like that to remind you, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We are a grace people, not a works people. And so remember that. Verse 12, six days you shall do your work and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, that the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. So everybody rested. Now, Sabbatarians argue that God established the keeping of the Sabbath day in Genesis when he rested on the seventh day of creation. And that almost makes sense. But if that were the case, why must he now tell Israel to keep the Sabbath? If it had been the pattern since creation, they would have defaulted to it once freed from slavery in Egypt. The truth of the matter is, God's seventh day rest in Genesis was not a perpetual moral command. It wasn't something you see Adam do weekly or any of the patriarchs. It started with Israel in the wilderness. I'm not saying nobody ever took a Saturday off in the Old Testament, but it wasn't something God commanded. It's something God did the end of the first week, but you don't read of any other Bible character observing the Sabbath until God gave it as a command to Israel. Verse 13, and in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. This exhortation makes sense when you remember that the land they were going to possess was filled with Canaanites who worshipped any number of weird gods. They'd need to be on guard. And more than on guard, it's interesting, the word translated circumspect, if you look it up in your Strong's Concordance, means to hedge about as with thorns, And so it's cool, God is talking about them in an agricultural sense and how much he's going to bless them and their crops. And then he says, by the way, here's a spiritual analogy you'll understand. Plant a hedge of thorns around your heart so that these foreign gods don't have an influence on you. And the command was pretty strict. Don't mention the gods. Their name should never be heard coming out of your mouth. Now you realize it would have been impossible to worship these gods if Israel had taken this literally. They might have been drawn to Baal or Ashtoreth or some of these other gods and goddesses, but if you can't say their name and their their name never comes across your tongue, you're not going to be able to engage in worshiping them. And so it was a literal command. Are there things God doesn't want you to see? Are there things God doesn't want you to hear? Are there things God doesn't want you to say? I would have to say probably in all of our lives. I think we should take those literally and cut ourselves off from those and make it impossible to sin in that area. I mean, there are things that we can do in some areas to make it impossible to sin in that area. I mean, we're sinners, and sinners are resourceful. Anybody who has children knows that. You have to be so specific in your comments to your children. Well, I thought you meant after midnight. No, I meant right now. But anyway, uh, and so, uh, but there are things that we can do to make that hedge of thorns around our lives and make it impossible for us to commit certain sins. I've said enough for us to know that we're not subject to the Sabbath. We've covered this in previous studies. Anytime the Sabbath comes up in our text, because Christians are troubled by this. But rather than go over that ground again, I want to share something I think a lot more encouraging and exciting to our walk with the Lord. It's a topic that is suggested to us by the Sabbath. It has to do with the number seven. Now, I'm not gonna get into a numerology thing where you know, the meaning of the number and all of that, that's, that's separate and sometimes a little bit strange. But I do notice that it seems to be a super important number in the word of God. We've already seen that the seventh day was a Sabbath and the seventh year was a Sabbath, There was also going to be a jubilee after every seven cycles of Sabbaths. That is, after seven times seven Sabbath years, uh, every 50th year. According to Leviticus, slaves and prisoners would be freed and debts would be forgiven and other great things would happen in that year of jubilee. We're going to read about three annual feasts in a minute, but in all there are going to be a total of seven biblical feasts. Concerning the feasts, it's interesting, every seventh month was holy and had three feasts. There were seven weeks between Passover and Pentecost. Passover lasted seven days. Feast of Tabernacles lasted seven days. At Passover, 14 lambs, which is a multiple of seven, were offered daily. At Tabernacles, 14 lambs and 70 bullocks, another multiple of seven, were offered. And at Pentecost, seven lambs were offered. Doesn't stop with that. The recurrence of the number seven, or an exact multiple of seven, is found throughout the Bible. Bear with me while I mention just a handful. Seven pairs of clean animals were taken on the ark. In addition, the ark came to rest in the seventh month. In Joseph's time, there were seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine in Egypt. Animals were to be at least seven days old before being used for sacrifice. Naaman, the leper, had to bathe in the Jordan River seven times in order to be healed. Sevens surrounded the conquest of Jericho. The Israelites marched around Jericho for seven days. On the seventh day, they had to make seven circuits. Seven priests blew seven trumpets outside the city walls. The prophet Daniel described God's prophetic plan for Israel as a multiple of seven, it was 70 weeks of seven years each. Jumping into the New Testament, Jesus told Peter to forgive 70 times seven. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. There are seven miracles recorded in the Gospel of John. In the Revelation, there are a slew of sevens. Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches represented by seven lampstands. Seven spirits minister before the throne in heaven. Jesus opens a seven-sealed scroll. It reveals seven trumpets and seven bowls of wrath. There are seven stars, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven thunders, seven heads, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven hills, and seven kings. You should be familiar with the ministry of Chuck Missler, M-I-S-S-L-E-R, a great man of God, always connected with Calvary chapels, spoke at a lot of our retreats years ago. He's home with the Lord now, but you can still get his stuff Online. Check YouTube for Chuck Missler. I watched a brief video in which he described what is called the heptatic structure of Scripture. Now that's just a big word that means seven or multiples of seven. And so we've seen there are a lot of sevens just in Scripture, but this is something deeper. It is an actual structure of the language based on the number seven. Using the first 17 verses of the Gospel of Matthew which contain the genealogy of Jesus, Missler reveals the hidden structure in the words themselves regarding the number seven or its multiples. So here it is. There are 72 Greek vocabulary words in these initial 17 verses, and this is what can be found. The number of words which are nouns is a multiple of seven. It's 56 or seven times eight. The Greek word the occurs most frequently in the passage, exactly 56 times or seven times eight. Also, the number of different forms in which the article the occurs is exactly seven. There are two main sections in the passage, verse 1 through 11 and verses 12 through 17. In the first main section, the number of Greek vocabulary words used is 49, seven times seven. Of these 49 words, the number of those beginning with a vowel is 28, seven times four. The number of words beginning with a consonant is 21, seven times three. The total numbers of letters in these 49 words is 266, which is 7 times 38. The number of vowels among these 266 letters is 140, or 7 times 20. The number of consonants is 126, or 7 times 18. Of the 49 words, the number of words which occur more than once is 35, 7 times 5. The number of words occurring only once is 14, 7 times 2. The number of words which occur in only one form is exactly 42, or 7 times 6. The number of words appearing in more than one form is 7. The number of the 49 Greek vocabulary words which are nouns is 42, 7 times 6. The number of words which are not nouns is 7. Of the nouns, 35 are proper names, exactly 7 times 5. These 35 names are used 63 times, or 7 times 9. The number of male names is exactly 28, 7 times 4. These male names occur 56 times, 7 times 8. The number in which are not male names is 7. Three women are mentioned, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. The number of Greek letters in these three names is 14, seven times two. The number of compound nouns is seven. The number of Greek letters in these seven nouns is 49, seven times seven. One city is named in this passage, Babylon, which in Greek contains exactly seven letters. And there's some other stuff there that I just had to stop with that. Missler based a lot of his stuff on the earlier work of a guy by the name of Ivan Panin, in Genesis 1-1, Pannon discovered an incredible phenomena of multiples of seven, a heptatic structure. The number of Hebrew words in Genesis 1-1 is seven. The number of letters is 28, seven times four. The first three Hebrew words translated in the beginning created have 14 letters, which is seven times two. The last four Hebrew words translated the heavens and the earth have 14 letters, which is seven times two. Fourth and fifth words have seven letters, and the sixth and seventh words have seven letters. There are many, many other sevens as well, but these should be more than enough to show that underneath the inspired words of Scripture, there is a supernatural structure that gives evidence of a design. And so it's one thing to find the number seven or groups of seven. It's something else to analyze the letters themselves and the words themselves and to find remarkable combinations of seven and the multiples of seven, which are incalculable if you're thinking this could happen by chance. No supercomputer could, appro- could even a- approximate this, uh, and especially when you consider that these are, uh, like the Matthew account is a history of a genealogy spanning centuries. And so, you know, I, I don't know about you, I get excited about things like this. I don't need to be proven anymore that the Bible is the word of God. But when you come across things like this and you think, wow, If people could only be honest and and, and if you could only say, look, can you explain the heptatic structure of this passage, just this passage to me? Because it's incalculable. No one could do it. No human being could do it. No supercomputer could do it. Is it random that all of these numbers add up to seven and are multiples of seven? Or is this evidence of a divine design? Is this the signature of God on this text? And of course, the answer is yes. And so we could talk about the Sabbath all the time, and, and we need to. Every time it comes up, we need to point out some things about it. Or we could see something a little bit bigger, a little bit larger, and that it is a part of the Word of God, which is definitely supernatural and inspired. Now, your worship of the Lord ought to be festal, beginning in verse 14. After I read that article on scrolling back in time on the calendar, I scrolled back to my birthday in 1955. It fell on a Sunday. This year, it's on a Tuesday. So do you ever wonder how George Washington's birthday can always be the third Monday in February? (laughs) The Uniform Monday Holiday Act, an act of Congress that amended the federal holiday provisions to establish the observance of certain holidays on Mondays. Signed into law 1968, took effect 1971. So that's why some of you don't know what I'm talking about. The act moved Washington's birthday, which is February 22nd, Memorial Day, May 30th, and Veterans Day at the time, November 11th, from fixed dates to designated Mondays and established as a federal holiday, Columbus Day, the biggest one of them all, which had previously been celebrated in some states on October 12th. It moved that to a designated Monday as well. Veterans Day was removed from the list of always-on-Monday holidays and moved back to its traditional date of November 11th in 1975, effective 1978. Although the holiday was not in existence at the time, Martin Luther King's birthday, established in 1983, is celebrated on the third Monday in January instead of King's actual birthday, January 15th. The act was designed to increase the number of three-day weekends for federal employees there. I mean, nobody was me- uh, apologetic about it. They wanted three-day work, work week, or weekends, and they got it. I'm not complaining. I like a long weekend as much as the next person, and now we we stretch it out into four or five days if we can, right? Take a vacation day on the Friday, go through Monday. You're sick on Tuesday. I know how it works. (laughs) Pity poor Israel. As far as I can tell, I could be wrong, but it doesn't look like Israel had any holidays until the Exodus, and then all of a sudden they had three involving pilgrimage. Verse 14: Three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year.'" You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, shall eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt, none shall appear before me empty. Feast of Unleavened Bread includes Passover, which immediately precedes it, and it includes first fruits, which ends it. For example, this year Passover was on our calendar, March 31st through April 1st. Unleavened Bread was April 1st through April 8th. First fruits was April 7th and 8th. And so those three feasts all come under the same umbrella and happen at approximately the same time. The Israelites went in haste from Egypt, having no time to spare. This was symbolized by eating bread that didn't have time to rise. For a while, I get into modes where I I do the same thing over and over and over again. It drives Pam crazy, but it's just who I am. And so for a while, every Sunday... Our lunch was a cast iron pizza and a delicious recipe that I came across but I had to make the dough the day the night before. And so I had to set an alarm at 9 p.m. to go and make the dough and high, you know cover it so that it could rise so that I could make my pizza on Sunday afternoon. And so the Israelites say none of that you didn't have time for bread to rise because the death, uh, death came to the firstborn and then you were told to get out of Dodge and so just take unleavened bread and when you're eating that unleavened bread you can explain to your children and future generations all about the Passover. Then in verse 16, the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field. Uh, stop there for a minute. This feast is also known as the feast of weeks or the feast of 50 days because it begins 50 days after Passover. We know this feast as... Pentecost, which translates roughly to 50 days. This year, Pentecost was May 26th and 27th. Then verse 16 goes on, says, the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. This is the feast of tabernacles or booths when the Jews would live outdoors in temporary shelters. Now, this year, it will be September 24th through October 1st. It will be preceded by two other holy days, the Feast of Trumpets on September 10th and 11th, and the Day of Atonement about five days before on September 19th and 20th. And so with those, you have seven feasts of the Lord uh, and three of them in which you have to appear before the Lord. Now, these appointed times gave thanks for the harvest. They were agricultural in nature, but they also commemorated three important spiritual events. Unleavened bread commemorated the Passover, as we said, when the lamb's blood sprinkled on the doorpost redeemed them from the death of the firstborn. Pentecost commemorated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, traditionally believed to be 50 days after Passover. And tabernacles commemorated God's continual provision for Israel in the wilderness as they had to live in the wilderness uh, on their way to the promised land and God provided and cared for them. So when they all were out in their temporary shelters, uh, it was indication of this time of wandering. Verse 17, three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. How do you hear that? Do you hear that as as something punishing? Three times a year, you're gonna have to appear. This is like being ordered to celebrate. You're gonna have to have fun on your birthday. It'd be like your boss, some people have their birthday off as a holiday, right? Anybody here get your birthday off as a holiday? There you go, yeah, one missionary. (laughs) What kind of a world do we live in? This would be like being forced to take a day off. And, and so I don't see it as a, a, a terrible mandate at all. It's festive. Uh, and you know what? They, they, were, they were being forced to go and have a great time at the temple or the tabernacle. You should have a great time when you come to church. It's our desire, by our I mean our, uh, <laughs> whoever our is, <laughs> whoever is them and our, uh, we want you to have a great time here at Calvary. We want you to hear the word. We want you to worship. Have a great cup of coffee if you want, you know, whatever. But it should be a festive time. It doesn't mean you can't come into contact with God and, and cry or have adjustments made in your life. Or, but even that, it's a wonderful thing. If we ever get to the point where it's just a drudgery to go to church, there's something wrong. Usually with you, it could be something wrong with the church. I'm not, you know... Not opposed to that. You come up to me and tell me if there's some problems and we'll deal with it. Uh, but, you know, it, it's like, oh, Sunday, I so wanted to mow the yard today. Really? I mean, I know you, you know, you get some yard work done on Sunday, is it you'd want to do the yard work rather than go to church? Then your church must really be lame, or you are. Somebody's lame in that situation. I mean, seriously, I'm just being honest with you. If you want to do anything else but go to church, either you're lame or we're lame. And uh, I'm open to being lame, but I don't think we are. Not totally, anyway. I can be lame. Who are we? Anyway, so, uh, so they, they had constant reminders of the grace and mercy of God. These feasts would come up three times a year. And then daily they were doing sacrifices for the firstborn and all that. Lots of reminders. You and I need reminding. The Apostle Peter in his epistle says, this I put in remembrance of you. And we need reminding. A lot of times people complain Sunday school, the kids get the same Bible stories year after year. Well, yeah, that's true. Only on a different level, on a higher level, on a more mature level. Because there's nothing more important than they understand the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Years ago, we had a fellow, I mean, this is like 35 years ago, we had a fellow who started teaching American history in our Sunday school. And as much as I love American history and history in general, um, we don't want to teach American history in Sunday school. We want to teach the Bible so that your children at the earliest possible age will give their tender hearts to Jesus Christ and avoid many of the pitfalls that befell us who didn't have that opportunity. And so we need that reminding. We need reminding as adults. I have to check myself sometimes. I like to listen to Bible studies and to hear other people teach. And sometimes I find myself thinking, oh, I've, I've heard this before. And then I just have to slap myself either spiritually or physically and say, yeah, and I need to hear it again. Maybe I'm not implementing it. Maybe I'm gonna keep hearing it until I figure it out. Maybe that's the idea. Who knows? But we need to be reminded. And so they had constant reminders of what God had done for them and what he was doing in their midst. And so it was mandatory but festive. Now, twice we've heard God say, appear before me. We can forget that the Jews enjoyed the manifestation of the glory of God in the cloud during the daytime and the pillar of fire at night. And so they had his actual presence there. Verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until morning. Blood sacrifice here was the lamb offered at Passover, and so God is just giving them a little bit of uh, instruction on how they would offer the lambs at Passover. They get a lot more of this in the book of Leviticus. Verse 19, the first of the first fruits of your land shall, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I like this, the first of the first fruits. It always reminds me of that line in Men in Black where Will Smith goes, the best of the best of the best, sir, You know, and it uh, doesn't remind you of that, I can tell. Uh, but, so I'm just preaching to myself right now. But uh, the first and the best, and so yeah, I don't have to tell you that God deserves the first and the best, uh, but I do have to remind us that when we think we're giving God the first and the best and that he has to bless us for it, that's a whole different thing. So we ought to, Uh, because he's deserving but if we do it so that we can receive his blessing or earn some favor with him again that's a works thing and not a grace thing and so let's just avoid that the case of the young goat and his mother's milk uh, sounds like a sherlock holmes novel and it might as well be because no commentator on earth has any idea what this means uh... here's some guesses and I know that they don't know what it means because if they could prove any one of these, there wouldn't be any other theories. But here are the guesses. These are the top five. Top five reasons you can't boil a young goat in his mother's milk. Because it was an idolatrous practice. Because it was an occult practice to try to make the land more productive. Because it was cruel to destroy a baby goat in the very milk which sustained it. You meanie. Because milk and meat are difficult to digest. Those are the options that you have. Commentators have no idea. Jewish commentators have no idea. I have no idea. I do know that this isn't about health and hygiene. It has nothing to do with that. There's nothing inherently wrong with the practice that would lead to illness. I do know that it is a practice which would set them apart from their neighbors, leading to opportunities to share with Gentiles more about God. And we tend to forget that the Jews were mandated to share this wonderful life that they had come into with others. It reminds me, when I was first saved, I came out of a lifestyle where I was a drunk, and I uh, got saved, quit drinking. Uh, Well, actually, I didn't quit drinking. I just didn't drink anymore. It was the Holy Spirit thing. And the first Christmas party that we went to at our work, which are all about just being drunk, as most of you know, uh, it was the first year that I didn't drink, and didn't get drunk, and it just blew everybody's minds. And it wasn't anything I was trying to do. I didn't pray about it. I just didn't drink anymore. And people were, they, in fact, some were angry that I wasn't drinking. I seemed to be having a good time without being drunk, and, and, uh, and they were angry. But it gave me an opportunity to say, well, you know, since I became a Christian, oh, your religion, you can't drink. I said, no, no, I can. I, I don't want to. Uh, and, and I was able to share a little bit with people, and it was pretty cool, you know, And so that's, I think, what's going on here. It's like, hey, come on over for lunch. Ooh, ah, do you, do you know if this goat was boiled in its mother's milk? No, is that a problem? Well, it's not a problem except that uh, we're prohibited. Oh, you have so many weird laws. Yeah, but we have some other wonderful things going on, like a Sabbath year and a year of Jubilee. Do you have those? Because we do. And, and they would give an opportunity to share. And, and so that's what I think is going on. Uh, it's, it's not a hygiene issue. Have you been troubled by folks who say we as Christians are wrong for ignoring the feasts? One recent group is being called the Hebrew Roots Movement. Uh, I like the name because there's no doubt about what they're getting at. They believe that the church grew out of Hebrew roots that we have now forsaken and forgotten, and we need to return to them get back into the festivals and the rituals and stuff like that. Here, I like what one pastor said about this. He says, we have peace with God by trusting in the finished work of Christ alone. Add anything to that, you have fallen into a false gospel. You do not have peace with God by trusting in Christ and by being circumcised or by trusting in Christ and keeping the feast of weeks. Add anything to the work of Christ and you lose the work of Christ. So if you want to attend a Passover Seder, Uh, around Easter time and see what Jews are up to. That's great. If you think it is necessary to get back to your roots or that it will elevate your Christian walk and make you more spiritual, that is not okay. That is not grace. That is works. I mentioned earlier all the guys, the, the church was all Jewish at the beginning. And they had a problem. They had this very problem There were a bunch of Jews who said, the Gentiles have to stick to our roots. They have got to be circumcised and obey certain laws of Moses. And so they had a big church council about it. And they presented arguments. Peter talked. Paul talked. The Judaizers talked. And at the end, an entirely Jewish panel of uh, believers who were still keeping certain things because it was their culture said, guys, Gentiles don't have to do anything Jewish. No days, no rituals, no rites. They don't need to get into our roots. Just tell them not to offend Jews by drinking things strangled and things filled with blood. If it was good enough for the earliest church, it's good enough for us. And so we can learn a lot. We can glean a lot from these feasts and festivals and all. But as soon as somebody starts telling you that we've lost our way, now you're headed towards a false gospel, a works gospel. So don't do it. The church has a very different calendar than Israel. We are told to live in daily expectation of the Lord's return to resurrect and rapture us. We're to look forward to, and by doing so, hasten the return of the Lord. That's our calendar. Every year there are predictions that Jesus is going to rapture us during the Feast of Trumpets or on Pentecost. He might, but he might do it on any other day of the year. My phone's operating system automatically populates my calendar with weird holidays. Ashura and Indigenous Peoples Day are coming up. Don't worry about Christmas. We've still got months for Christmas, but Indigenous Peoples Day, you're going to get caught short if you don't know when that is. It would be better, wouldn't it, if every day it began with a pop-up reminder, Jesus is coming. Amen?